0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Something you might not know about me is uh, is that I never went to university. When I graduated from high school, um, I I didn't go there. I applied for two courses, though, and I, I got into them. I got into psychology and marine biology. And I did neither of them because... I had no idea what I was meant to do with my life. And, uh, and so the last thing I wanted to do was just toddle off to uni uh, for the sake of it. And so I just, I kind of let them go. I didn't even defer. I just didn't answer the letter uh, that I got confirming that I'd been accepted. So as far as I know, maybe I'm still on the roll there at Monash. Um, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I've kind of moved on. I'm 38 in March, by the way. That was when I was 18. Oh. The reason I want to do psychology is because I'm fascinated by people. I'm really fascinated by people's behavior and specifically why people are the way they are. Um, like, For example, when it comes to conflict, I find it fascinating. What makes you either uh, have an aversion to conflict or an, an, an attraction to conflict? It seems like people are roughly divided into one of those two categories. Brian's here this morning. He's attracted to conflict. Let me tell you like that. He's one, he's one of those guys. So just he, be, he he is what he looks like, right? So just be careful when you go and say hi to him after the service, all right? That's not true. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Prove my point. So <laughs> So, why, why are some people Attracted, why some people have this aversion to it. It seems like across cultures, there's roughly the same kind of majority of people who are, who are sort of have this aversion to conflict, and then, you know, slightly, slightly uh, few people who are attracted to it. Seems like that's common across cultures, with the exception of one group of people. And I think you know the people I'm talking about, right? Redheads. Specifically, specifically red-headed women. Red-headed women, they are attracted to conflict. At the very least, there is no aversion to conflict. It's true. Here's how I know it's true. I've been married to one for 13 years, all right? So I know... I've been together with her for 15. I've got a large bank of data to, to prove this point, and, and really whatever I know about her is just echoes throughout the red-headed female community. It's a fact, all right? So um, I'm sure there's research to prove this. Renee is not averse to conflict. She doesn't go looking for it. She's not nasty about it. But when it comes to her, she doesn't flinch. And so this was helpful to her when she was a paramedic and she just kept getting dropped into situations where people wanted to kill her, right? You interrupt someone's high, suddenly they want to kill you. And she kind of just was able to deal with that or with uh, situations where there are crowds of people and there's a bit of angst and so on. Um, I won't go into how this plays out in our marriage. You can do do the... do the math so I'm not saying that Jesus was a redhead but you can't prove that he wasn't so some of the evidence for the fact that Jesus might have had a bit of uh, bit of those genes in him is that if you read through the gospel of Mark he just goes from one conflict to another unflinchingly Now, remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man. So he has all of these biological nature, nurture things going on in him like we do, determining whether he's kind of, um, you know, averse to conflict or attracted to it. All of that stuff is playing out. The only thing I know is he seems to be utterly unflappable when it comes to conflicts and even conflict with the most powerful people in his community. So it's one thing to stand up to 12-year-old kid. It's another thing to stand up to people with great power. And this is something that Jesus does over and over again. Check it out. You find it in the very first couple of verses of this chapter. Verse 1 to 2 of chapter 3 says this. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they, that is the the, the religious elite, were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So you have yet another in a long chain of situations that Mark tells us about where Jesus is coming into conflict with the religious leaders of the day. We're only into our third sermon in this series and we've seen this time and time again. And it's going to happen time and time again up until and including the point that he's killed. Now the question is why why are these guys waiting to pounce on Jesus watching him closely in order to accuse him the the word accuse there is a legal term so that they're not just wanting to jump on him and, and, and point something out and wag their fingers and then walk away they're wanting to mount a case against him this is very strategic very deliberate the question is why And I think when it comes to the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the religious elite of Jesus' day, it's easy for us to kind of throw them under the bus. That's the easiest thing to do, right? Because we know they conspire to get Jesus killed. They're the most obvious bad guys of any story ever. And I've been guilty of throwing them under the the bus time and time again. But I I heard something recently. uh, My friend Guy Mason shared this insight with me that I'd never really heard before about why these guys were doing this, why they were conspiring against Jesus in this way. And it's really interesting because, unlike some of the other leaders of the day, the, the, some of the other sects, S E C T S, some of the other sects of, um, of Judaism, like the Zealots, like the Essenes, these guys who thought that the Messiah would bring in a, a political regime, would bring in a sort of military force to kick the Romans out. Of Jerusalem and give the land back to God's people. These guys believed that that reformation, that revolution, would happen through obedience to God's law. So not swords and spears and a, and a king, but through obedience. Because they, And they were right to an extent. They knew that throughout the Old Covenant, throughout your Old Testament, if you read through it, you'll notice time and time again, God makes promises to his people that they'll have a land of their own. However, to the degree that they disobey God and walk away from him, away from his purposes and plans and commands, he will uh, withdraw his blessing from them he will discipline them punish them sometimes by taking away what he had promised them and so you got to set the scene in your mind the Romans have uh, are occupying Israel the people have had their land taken from them essentially they're kind of renters now where they used to be owners and and these these Pharisees believe that that has happened because of the disobedience of the people, their failure to keep God's commandments. Now, that's a good theological case. You can make that case. And so their belief, their strong, zealous belief is that if the people would just be obedient, God would give them their land back. God himself would kick the Romans out and they would have this most precious thing back to call their own. And so you can see why they're so, so, they're so desperate that the people do what they're told and not just obey the Old Testament law but obey the reams and reams of laws which they've added to the Old Testament law so that they could increase the obedience of their people, right? One, one way to increase obedience is by making more laws that people have to obey. Just witness the Australian government, right? They, this is what they do. They... They just legislate stuff for fun. All right, we're not a political church. All right, get back to the script. Now, that's, that's all well and good unless people by nature aren't very good at obeying God's law, and then actually you increase disobedience rather than obedience. And it fails if on top of the law of God you build laws which actually work against the original intention of God's law. And that's exactly what's going on here, as we'll see in just a second. So that's the context. That's why they're so keen for people to obey the law, and that's why they hate Jesus so much, because this guy who seems like he might be the guy that God is using to bring about this restoration actually turns out to be someone who's not zealous for God's people to obey every jot of the law and the extra-biblical laws that these guys have added on top and so that he becomes very quickly an enemy of them, an enemy of their mission to make people obedient. Check this scene out. It's, it, it's, it's tense. Verse 3. Jesus told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Why does he do that? Because Jesus wants to make this a public collision of ideologies. He doesn't want this to be tucked away. He doesn't want this to be secret, withheld from the people. He wants this to be a public fight, not conflict-averse, stand before us, stand up, stand up in front of everybody, I want everybody to see this, I want everyone to witness this collision, it's a collision of law versus love, and it makes Jesus literally furious, verse 4 to 5, this is what it says, then Jesus said to them, to the the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, the word is fury, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Why is Jesus furious? Because the law was intended by God, written by Jesus, in effect, to enable and to encourage and to enrich love for God and for man. The purpose of the law is meant to encourage, enrich, uh, enliven all of the ends, right? It's meant to do all of that building up work in the hearts of men and women for God and for their neighbors. And then these people who are the most zealous people for that same law see a man with a shriveled hand and they're silent, see a man with a shriveled hand, and they are motionless. They can see that the right thing to do is to help him, and yet they can't admit it because they're more wedded to their ideology than they are to God's heart for his people. And that makes Jesus furious. Furious. If you're a man in the first century with a withered hand, you're screwed, right? You cannot provide for your family, which means your family has nothing. If you can't do something with your hands, you're done. And so a man has, there's this man in this pathetic, pitiful case and state. And these guys have seen Jesus heal. They know it's within his power to heal him. And rather than being excited and and having a sense of anticipation and expectancy, they're silent. And it makes Jesus furious. We're going to get to Mark chapter 12, and we're going to read this little interaction that Jesus has with one of these guys, one of these these law guys, one of these religious elite who's almost got it, all right? Let me just read this. One of the scribes approached. When he had heard them debating, that's Jesus and some other guys, and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, Which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart and all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Right? All of the details of the law, those things are more important than all of those things. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Why is he not far? Because he's just about got it. He understands that the purpose of the law is love, the purpose of the law is to. Enrich, encourage, enliven, love for God and for people. And so where this guy is close to getting it, these other guys are just so far away that they're blind to the fact that God is in their midst. The kingdom of God has come. Now, this is why it's so heartbreaking and, to be honest, frustrating when you come across that common belief that Christianity is is a religion of, of rule-keeping and, and Jesus is a sort of dispenser of rules. He's kind of a, he's, he's like a, he's a guru kind of guy, he's a dispenser of self-help, he's He's got his own 12 rules to live by, right? Like, And that, that idea is so heartbreaking and sometimes frustrating because it's just so far removed from the truth, what we know about Jesus and his kingdom. It's, all, it's kind of ironic, really, that what people perceive about Jesus and his followers is actually what was true of the scribes and Pharisees, those very people that Jesus came into conflict with because their views were so different. So I find it heartbreaking and, and, yeah, honestly, sometimes frustrating. I had a conversation with a guy recently in that very foyer who was saying that he could see the value of Jesus I found that an interesting way to characterize what he was talking about, like the value of Jesus. What does that mean? To him, the value of Jesus was a practical one. He could see that, uh, as an intelligent guy, he could see that much of what's good about Western civilization is built on the kinds of things that Jesus said, the kind of worldview he had, his kind of ethic. And so he could see the value in Jesus but he said he couldn't be a follower of Jesus because he couldn't do all the things that you're meant to do as a follower of Jesus. He couldn't keep all the vows. Now, let me just tell you why I didn't jump on him and tell him where he was absolutely 100% wrong, because there is a seed of truth in what he says. The problem with what he says is, because, is that he has made observance of a list of rules and regulations the marker of discipleship. That is, you know, if you're going to get over the line and call yourself a Christian, then you need to fulfill these requirements. That's where he's wrong. Where he's right is, yes, to be a follower of Jesus requires great obedience. Great obedience not just to a list of rules and regulations, but in the giving of your very self in service of him as Lord. And many people we're going to see, particularly through the book of Mark, are going to come face to face with that reality and walk away. Because they see, this is going to cost me everything. So you can see where he was wrong and where he's kind of right. The way we sometimes illustrate this idea of of, of obedience being the, the, in, in the service of love is by, through the illustration of a, of a kite, right? So the idea that this kite represents love for God and love for one another and, 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 and when flying a kite, you know, you, maybe you just put yourself in the kite's place. Just imagine that you're a kite right and, and, and representative of, of love for God and others and, and if you're that kite and you're flying high on a windy Caroline Springs day and you're up in the air, it might occur to you that, that while this is good and fun and I'm up in the air and I'm flying, I could keep going on forever if they would just cut that string that's holding me down. But as you know, or anyone who's ever flown a kite knows, as soon as you cut the string, it crashes to the ground. It needs that taut line in order to fly High, And it's the very same thing when it comes to love for God and one another. How does the law enliven, encourage, enrich love for God and man rather than restrict it? Well, because it's through obedience to God and his law and indeed Jesus' own commandments to his disciples that we're released, set free to live the life that God has actually called us to, that God has actually created us for. Love and law go together and you can't have one without the other. And what these guys wanted was one without the other. They wanted obedience to the law, not just instead of, but in spite of love for God and for one another. all of that, that whole kind of dynamic of obedience and love and discipleship and law and all of that that, that thing that Christians are called to, that, that movement that Jesus began in his earthly ministry, all of that is so far removed from this idea that Jesus is this provider of life wisdom, rules to live by this idea that he's just this one of many great moral teachers that have plied their trade through the years. All of this made me think, as it may have been making you think, uh, of of, uh, we don't have many saints in our church but if we're going to have one we might make C.S. Lewis one of them. He wrote this book called Mere Christianity. I know a lot of the young adults are reading and have read and and he, he discusses this idea and really tries to take down this idea of Jesus just being a good moral teacher, just a provider of rules to live by. And, and in, in his book, Mere Christianity, this was originally part of a, a sermon that he preached. This is what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. Why is that the one thing we must not say? Because if Jesus isn't God, and he's going around pretending to be God, then everything he says is a lie. Everything he says is based on this false premise. Nothing he says can be trusted because from the beginning he's been lying to you. He's deceitful. And so the one thing we can't say is he's not God, but he is a good guy. C.S. So goes on to say this. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, like the things he's been saying from the very first chapter of the book of Mark, a man who was merely a man, that is not God in human flesh, not God and man, but who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. So he's either lying to you, right? And who's the father of lies? Satan himself. Or he's completely lying to himself. That is, he's delusional. He's a lunatic. He thinks he's a poached egg, right? If you, think, you say you think you're God, you're in the same category as the poached egg guy, all right? They're just as ridiculous as one another. And the funny thing is that in this chapter that's exactly what people think of Jesus when they come across him, right? So in verse 20 to 21, let's let's see what his own family thinks about him. Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he is out of his mind. He's, he's crazy. This is, his, this is what his own family thinks, right? He's out of his mind. I mean, they've seen and heard the wisdom of his teaching. They've seen his miracles, casting out demons. They've seen this monumental rise to the point where people are crowding so much that he's got to jump in a boat and get out on a lake. Otherwise, he'll be crushed. They've seen all of this, and their response is, he's crazy, He's lost it. Which, as C.S. Lewis has pointed out, is perfectly logical. They've made a perfectly logical conclusion. This guy that we we had to, you know, we had to wipe his bum as he grew up. We had to feed him. We had to discipline him, right? We had to raise him. We had to shape over all of these years, suddenly he's saying he's God, and that means he's crazy. Perfectly logical. Conclusion. Keep going. Verse 22. Next verse. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Another perfectly logical conclusion. He can't be God. Therefore, either his family's right and he's cracked or... He's a demon. He's the devil incarnate. The reason that he can tell demons what to do is because he's their master. Perfectly logical conclusion if he's not God. You take that one out of the reckoning, you're not left with good moral teacher. You're left with he's crazy or he's the father of lies. Exactly the response of the people in the book of Mark. In fact, in this very chapter. Now, I've told you that one of the things I love about Mark, which I never noticed until I had my study week recently and got to go through this, one of the things I noticed was that Mark is funny. John Mark is a funny guy. And the, the kind of humor he likes is our kind of humor. He loves irony. He's very dry. He's got a very dry wit. He's very British, all right? And so he, uh, he employs this irony time and time again. Like we're going to see later on, um, that the rulers of the law come to terms with who Jesus is, but they can't see him for who he is. They're blind. And then Jesus heals a blind man, literally heals a blind man. And then the disciples do the same thing as the Pharisees. They see who Jesus is, but they don't get it because they're blind. He deliberately puts things together in order to poke fun at people, to, be, to, to employ irony to make a point. He does this time and time again, and he does it right here, because there's one group of of, of beings that get it right. It's not the Pharisees. It's not Jesus' own disciples who he's just called to himself in the previous verses. It's not his own family who know him better than anyone. Verse 7 to 11. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea. And a large crowd followed him from Galilee, and a large crowd followed him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him and the, so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, What? You are the son of God. That's funny. That's funny. The only ones who get it are the demons. The only ones who see reality, whether Jesus is liar, lord, or lunatic, the the only people who see him as lord are the demons themselves. This is what C.S. Lewis says. We're going to keep quoting him. He says, Let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither or neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently... However strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Go back to the previous quote. Number three, he says this, and this is what I say to you, and this is what Mark is saying to you. Mark has positioned this whole chapter in order to to, to pose this question to you, to force you into making this decision. You must make your choice, Lewis says, Either this man was and is the son of God, as the demons say, or else a madman, as his family says, or something worse, as the scribes say. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. I read that As a 19-year-old kid in the year 2000, as a baby Christian, I read that. And I'm so grateful to God that I did because it forced me into a position where I either had to drop my nets and follow Jesus forever, making all of life all about him, or I had to curse him and kill him. I couldn't keep doing what I had always done and sort of had a vague appreciation for Him. He doesn't leave that option open to us. So if you're here this morning and you say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, you're going to stand up and come forward in a minute and share the Lord's Supper as as God's family, then maybe you need to come to terms with this reality once more. Making all of life all about Jesus isn't just a catchy, you know, weird marketing ploy that we have as a church. This is life. This is Christian life. Maybe some of us need to, as we stand up and walk towards the table, maybe we need to once more commit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. Jesus wants you to know unequivocally what it means to be a Christian. It's nothing less than acknowledging him as God. And what that means takes a whole lifetime to figure out, and we're here to walk that journey with you. But let no one leave today undecided. The purpose of this series in the book of Mark is to leave no one undecided. That was Mark's purpose in writing the letter in the the gospel in the first place. He wants us to know that we can know and love and trust Jesus, God, and man. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are clear. You've made things clear. We need not speculate. We need not be confused. Lord God, you've made it clear who Jesus is. And so I pray this morning that each one of us in this room and and for the kids in their space, Lord, that each of us would once again, or maybe for the first time, acknowledge you, Lord Jesus, God and man, Lord and Saviour, Christ and King. Father, would you please be gracious to us, do that miracle in our hearts, help us to see what so many in Mark's gospel fail to see, that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, we, may have, we, we will have life, eternal life in his name. Amen.